Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. I'm Martha Hall Foos, and I've got a new book coming out, A Good Meal is Hard to Find, Storied Recipes from the Deep South, with my good gal pal, Amy C. Evans. Okay, let's do a quick quarantine question round. Number one, where are you living? Right now, I'm in uh, Greenwood, Mississippi, which is about halfway between Memphis and Jackson in the Mississippi Delta, right on the banks of the Yazoo River. We also have a farm that's the next county over. That's a family farm. And then I have a house out there in a place called Pluto, Mississippi. Lately, we haven't been out there too much except to go mow the grass because of uh, lack of internet connection. But uh, we kind of split our time back and forth between the two places. What restaurant are you dreaming of going to after the quarantine? Without question, the Beauty Shop restaurant in Memphis, Tennessee. Karen Carrier is the chef there, and I want to eat her dish called Watermelon and Wings. It's chicken wings with cashew dust and chili sauce and then slices of cold watermelon on the side. And that's what I want more than anything. So I've been revisiting recipes that make me feel like home, things my mom used to make, like a simple bologna sandwich or potato salad. I know you have a reverence for passed along recipes. So I'm wondering what dish is getting you through this? I know this sounds corny, but chicken pot pie. No, not me, at all. It's just the, the ultimate comfort. And in A Good Meal is Hard to Find, we have an easy peasy recipe for one. And when my son was little and he'd get mad at somebody, he would say, you, you, you chicken pot pie. And so <laughs> that always makes me laugh and feel at home. And my mom makes a great chicken pot pie. And the other thing that seems to be a big comfort dish is just simple broiled catfish with tons of lemon and butter and Worcestershire sauce on it, just broiled with some rice on the side. For some reason, that's been something that we've been going to at least once a week. Okay, now on with the show. As I understand it, this cookbook is a love letter to women and food in the Deep South. Can you talk a little bit about that? First, I love my collaboration with Amy Evans. She's a a dear friend and also has been really inspirational to me. So the first love letter would be to my partner in this uh, venture. And I think a lot of times when people talk about Southern cooking, there are two extremes. It's either mammal in the kitchen or it's some dude chef with a pig tattoo. And there doesn't seem to be much in the middle of people that, as Amy and I say, and has been said before, of people that are trying to make a way out of no way. And I think that's something that probably resonates with people a lot these days. And so um, also, Amy and I always found the sort of mystery of the names that are at the bottom of recipes that are in community cookbooks. And a lot of times the woman isn't even mentioned by her own name. It's, you know, Mrs. J.D. Palum or something like that, and not even recognized by their own name. They were just the adjunct of whoever the husband was. And so that kind of rankled me and Amy. And um, so we wanted to kind of give a voice to just the neighbors. Through that, we just sort of created this whole community of imaginary friends. Women were their husband's wives back then. They weren't an individual. Right. So if there's like a community cookbook from a church league or a 
benevolent society of some sort. Like, for example, there's one recipe title that always stuck with me called Mrs. Munson's Cold Tongue. And it was this <laughs> beef tongue recipe. But it wasn't even Lila Munson or whoever she was. We don't even know who Mrs. Munson's first name is. So things like that were kind of a jumping off point for us. Yeah, I remember my mom used... Mrs. W.S. Chase up until I'd say like the mid 70s. And then she dropped it and she became Marilyn. Yeah. And then sometimes it would be, you know, Mrs. George Jones, nay, Snavely. So you could have her father's name, but you still didn't know her first name. Yes. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So food is a lens to society. When I think of Southern food, I think of a story that goes along with a dish or ingredients. You, you touched on this a little bit just now, but, but talk a little bit more about how community cookbooks or the Junior League cookbooks have influenced you. Those were the first cookbooks that I really read. You know, when I was a kid, they were always in our kitchen and growing up in a rural area like the Delta, you know, everybody was trying to do a fundraiser for either the church building society or the missionary society or, you know, the Elks or the Episcopal church ladies or the all sorts of fundraisers were always going on. So those were pretty much the first cookbooks that I was exposed to really that and like Better Homes and Gardens cookbook or Joy of Cooking. So they have a fond place in my heart just because they were the first things that I knew of what a cookbook was. How did you meet Amy C. Evans? We were both trying to figure this out, and she had come down to work on an oral history project throughout the Delta. And we think we met through that, maybe at the farmer's market here, which was just getting started, and she was documenting the beginning of the new farmer's market here. Um, And that was, I don't know how many years ago, over a decade, I would guess. Can you describe the first time you two sequestered yourselves at your farmhouse in Pluto, Mississippi, to put this cookbook together? I was so thrilled. I had approached Amy about this idea a couple of years before this initial uh, retreat and kind of bugged her about it. And then I was like, quit bugging her about it, Martha. And then out of the blue, she called and she had been at a conference. And one of the things was about collaboration. And then she finally warmed up to the idea. And so then it was like, okay, let's get together and do this. And so she came out to Pluto, which is 17 miles to a gallon of milk once you get out there. So basically you have to kind of bring your own fun when you come. She was bringing her daughter, Sophia, who was pretty little at the time. And I figured I needed something to keep her occupied. So I brought my cotton candy machine, which did a great job of keeping her busy. And my cousin, Leanne, who is the inspiration for Lenore's Hot Tamale Balls, which is a recipe on page 82. Her name's Lenore Ann, but we all call her Leanne. She came out with us, and uh, Leanne cooked for us and gave us inspiration. And Amy and I sat at this sort of 1950s Formica table in the kitchen and uh, stared out the window and honestly drank a bit of bourbon and ate a lot of pie and just started thinking about the wonderful titles to her paintings. And some of the titles, let me get to the illustration page and I'll tell you a few of them that are my favorite. There's one called Loretta put the coffee on the stove and crawled back in bed to find the details from her dreams. And so she had already set up 
sort of the first line or the idea through just the titles of her paintings. And then we started to talk and imagine these women's backstories. So what kind of coffee was Loretta going to put on the stove? And what was she getting in bed, back in bed to think about? Or one painting is um, Marge took her usual measurements. And I think that's the first recipe in the book. Actually, it's the second recipe, I think, in the book. And we decided that that would be two fingers of vodka and some grapefruit juice that she was measuring. So we just got really into these these women's backstories. And then the more we talked about them, a lot of times the more tickled we got at ourselves, first of all, for just sitting there making up these ridiculous stories. And then second of all, some of them are, you know, a little poignant. Some of them are about heartbreak or um, remembering somebody that had passed. So, I mean, at some point, it got to the point where we really felt like they were just pulling up a chair at the table and telling us about themselves. And one of the things we really wanted to be cognizant of is Amy's paintings usually just include three objects and sometimes are very baffling, like the one that is the chicken pot pie recipe. The painting is a vintage Swanson's chicken pot pie box an uh, old rabbit foot keychain like you used to get out of the prize machine at the skating rink, and a dill pickle. And then it has a painting of a floral oil cloth on the side. So we wanted to keep the stories that didn't just tell a start-to-finish story, that also gave you room to interpret the stories the way you wanted to and the way that these women, we kind of made them up for the readers and home cooks to sort of finish the story themselves so that they became their own friends as much as they had become our friends. I'm curious to hear about Grace's four-cornered nabs on page 85. Can you read this headnote? Sure. And this one was inspired by Amy's grandmother. It's one of my favorite of Amy's paintings of all time. It features a old, like, Samsonite-style train case with the outline of a large ham with a comma and then a nab. And for those that don't know, nabs are the little crackers named after Nabisco's little crackers like you buy in a convenience store. It looks like a Cheez-It. It looks like a Cheez-It, but for those in the know about nabs, there are two different types of nabs. Like if we were on a road trip and pulled in a convenience store, I would, and I was going in, I would say, Susie, do you want some nabs? And if you said yes, then I would say, do you want round or four-corner nabs? And round nabs are the ones that are regular plain or malt crackers with cheese in the middle or peanut in the middle. And if you say, I want four-corner nabs, that means you mean the cheese ones with peanut butter filling. So oh. that's a little, <laughs> a little nab trivia for you there. <laughs> so, so can you read the head note? Sure. Please. Grace couldn't take any chances, so she fit all sorts of contingencies into her train case. This was, after all, the first time she was making the trip to visit her granddaughter all the way over in Texas. For all Grace knew, they ate brisket for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That just wouldn't do. No, ma'am. Grace made sure that they would have some proper Alabama staples within reach during her visit, so she packed some nabs at the last minute just to make the trip bearable. And then it has a recipe for the cheese crackers and then a peanut butter filling. Apparently, they're a proper Alabama staple. That's my favorite line. (laughs) Well, that and a good ham. (laughs) 
It's so funny because I can vividly picture Grace in my head. Good. That's what we were hoping for. See, now she's your friend too. You have a notions and notes section with every recipe. And this recipe, um, you included some ways to serve the crackers, other uses for the filling. And the best is if you don't have a decorative pastry cutter on hand, you can use a rotary fabric cutter with a scallop blade, but wash it before you return it to your sewing box. That made me laugh. (laughs) There are a couple of the notes that are pretty silly. And then uh, some of them that are actually geared to help the home cook complete these recipes. And for the most part, they're really straightforward recipes. Most of them are, you know, only a page long. And things like you know, notes on serving, if you want to make something extra fancy, or if you don't feel like making part of the recipe and you want to use a frozen pie dough or refrigerated pie crust, we're not going to shame anybody and be like, well, you've got to make your home pie crust or you're, you know, less, (laughs) you're doing less. But, you know, sometimes girls just got to do what a girl's got to do. (laughs) Amen. I, like you gals, am intrigued by consumerism. This line right here in the cookbook jumped out at me. How the throwaway matchbook can become a keepsake for a lifetime. Now, I remember when my dad remarried this lady who was from West Texas. Her name was Willena Joe. We called her Joe. Well, Joe loved her pastel-colored modern 80s decor, and she'd say, and I'm not even going to try to do a Southern drawl, she would say in her Southern drawl, Susie only likes old stuff. Can you talk a little bit about your hunt for stories at estate sales or resale shops? I live for estate sales. Uh, We do too. And it's the things in the back of the drawer that we love. Like Me too. I found this towel hook that's this small hand and it's so weird that it's like first of all who would buy this and then second of all why would you keep it in the back of the drawer because it's so awesome if you had it (laughs) so it's like questions like these that really send amy and i and we also love the sweet little gestures of people using things that they've got amy and i talk about she had done a a wonderful oral history with miss streeter hattie streeter that runs a farm right near here. And at the farmer's market, she ties up her bundles of spring onions with little red yarn bows. And it's things like that that Amy and I just love. We love everything from old Avon perfume bottles to, oh, don't get us started about a yardstick that advertises a hardware store. We've probably, who knows how many of those each we've got. So it's those things that you're not ever going to see again. You know, they're not making more of them. I said this in my first book, that in a way, we're sort of homesick for a place we still live. And that's not saying that we have some imagined idea of what good old days in the South were like, because that's not what we're saying. It's more of the community involvement and And I guess during this stay home time for everybody, it's spending the time to do those little things and to appreciate small things, I guess, a little bit more. Last night, I made Clementine's H-Town queso. It goes with the crawfish puppies, but I can't find any crawfish in New York City right now in the middle of the pandemic. 
So I made this, and this dip was inspired by the Old Felix Mexican Restaurant in Houston. Can you tell us about this recipe? One woman that Amy and I both are inspired by and love so much is Lisa Fain and her Homesick Texan blog and also her Homesick Texan cookbooks. And Amy grew up in Houston and lives there now. And although Felix's is no longer a going concern, this queso sort of had a cult following and is very regionally specific to the Houston area. And as much as the recipe has a lot of characters that are in the Delta, we also wanted to make sure that Texas got a great representation. And so Lisa was actually kind enough to share the recipe with us. And for those that are thinking this is the ubiquitous cheese dip that you find in a Tex-Mex restaurant, it's got sort of a, how would you describe it? I would say sort of a garnet oil slick across the top of it. (laughs) Well, yeah, because you use real cheddar cheese, and I think that makes for the slick. Yeah, yeah. It's got a little chopped onion and diced tomatoes and garlic and chili powder and hot paprika, and you use shredded cheese in it. I mean, it's just a good snack if you're, like, hanging out on the couch. Which we all are. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What I learned from this recipe is the secret ingredient is the paprika. Kudos to Lisa, because I'm sure there was a lot of research that went into trying to get this thing just right. Yeah. And she has a book. She has a book that's uh, called Queso. So if you want to broaden your queso world, you can turn to her book. Speaking of cookbooks... Now for my segment called My Favorite Cookbook. What is your all-time favorite cookbook and why? My all-time favorite cookbook is one that was published in the Delta, and I think initially it was published in the 70s, but it's called Bio Cuisine. One thing I love about it is because it's sort of brilliant the way it's put together, not just the way that the book is structured, but they use this comb binding that you see on so many community cookbooks. But this one has like a time release self-destruction where after about five years, the comb binding gets so brittle it breaks and the index falls off the back. (laughs) And the recipes aren't divided up by breakfast appetizers fish, poultry, in that kind of order. So there's no way for you to find the recipe unless you have the index. And then after the index falls off the back, you've got to buy a new copy of the book. So I think that's going to be my plan for my next book is to put a self-destructing comb binding on it. But I think you can find copies of it online. And I think they've put sort of a condensed version in a bound copy, but Bio cuisine, or as people one state over might call it Bayou cuisine, but in Mississippi we say bio. So it's spelled B A Y O U? Mm hmm. Okay. <laughs> I know. So we're, we're very specific down here. I love it. Where can we find you on the web and social media? There's a website that we're beginning, or Amy is beginning to get together called A Good Meal is Hard to Find.com. And as I get my social networking together, you'll be able to find all the links to how to get in touch with us in any possible way. And also there's a section for people to get in touch with us. As people make recipes, 
would love for them to send us pictures. In the end of the book, we say, thank you for visiting with all of us. Please do stay in touch. Drop us a line and some snapshots of your favorite dishes when you have a minute. Amy, Martha, and the ladies. P.S. You can find us at uh, goodmealishardtofind.com. This cookbook is the perfect Mother's Day present. Thank you so much, Martha, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Well, it was my pleasure, and um, y'all stay safe and tell some stories and cook a lot and be safe. Subscribe over on cookerybythebook.com. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book.